is from John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. Oh, no. Probably actually need... Sorry. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, but others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He had said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's great to be back here to worship with you all at ICC. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is uh, Christian. And Happy New Year! <laughs> I hope you guys had a good break and enjoyed the holidays. Now, New Year's is always a good time to reflect on life, isn't it? You kind of uh, take stock of what happened the year before and you set goals for the year ahead. Now, for most of us, 
when we think about life and where we want to be in a year's time, we always want an upward movement, don't we, in life? Uh, with studies and work, we'd want good grades to graduate, uh, to get that promotion or a better job. With relationships, we'd want to get attached or get married. And with a family, we may be hoping for a child uh, or more harmony within our own unit. In a nutshell, what we want for our lives is success. Success in every area. An upward trajectory. Increase. Success. Abundance. But the passage today totally kills that vibe, doesn't it? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Now, that's a controversial claim, isn't it? But psychotherapist Dr. Sarah Kerberich actually gives us a hint of at least how, in one sense, there is a problem behind loving this life. So, Sarah argues that getting engaged or getting that promotion, it might not stop you from questioning your meaning in life or from hating yourself. And most people, when they achieve their goals and milestone, they can come to the fear of knowing that nothing is actually worth its hype. And most of us cope with this by setting another goal or focusing our attention on achieving another thing so that we don't have to focus on the larger questions of life. Basically, she's saying here that there's something deeply unsatisfying at the end of every pursuit in life. And even if it is satisfying, it won't be satisfying for long. You'll end up having to pursue something else. Now, inherently as humans, we are constantly seeking something worth pursuing. Something worth giving our lives to. But here's the argument of Scripture today. Jesus is the only one worth pursuing and devoting your life to. Pursuing him will be at the cost of your life, but it will be well worth it. So today's message will be about life, our life and Jesus' life. And we'll consider it from three angles. A fruitful life, a glorious life, and a shining life. Uh, to begin, I'll just quickly summarize John's gospel uh, up until this point so we can kind of get our bearings and understand where we are in the story. So John's gospel basically traces the story of Jesus' life on earth. And the first part of John is actually often called the book of signs because this is where Jesus' miracles are recorded. Now, these miracles actually get greater and greater as the book progresses. The first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine. 
And it's not some of that cheap wine stuff like Yellowtail. It's some of that expensive wine, like Penfolds, Block 42. Now, the second miracle is that Jesus feeds the 5,000. After that, Jesus heals a man born blind. And his peak miracle up until this point was resurrecting a dead man, resurrecting Lazarus. So we see from John 1 to 12, Jesus' miracles are becoming more and more powerful. There's an escalation, an increase. And with that, his fame was growing too. More and more people follow him. In fact, just before this text is the triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and is welcomed as a king. So we see here an upward trajectory of Jesus' life. Yes, he had his enemies, but by worldly accounts, he's successful. But so far, this fame has only been constrained to the Jews, his own nation. But look at verses 20 to 21. Now, even the Greeks are seeking Jesus. Uh, back in those days, uh, in Judaism, the world is basically just separated between Jews and Gentile. And sometimes they use Gentiles and Greeks interchangeably. Now, the Jews were the people of God's promise, and the Gentiles and Greeks was just everyone else. So what's, ev- what's happening here is Jesus' ministry is opening up not just to God's people, but to the whole world. The world is starting to seek Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. But look at how Jesus responds to being sought by the world. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when Jesus spoke of being glorified, he's actually speaking of his death. And it might be weird. Why is glory and death, why are they one and the same thing? Uh, We'll get to that in the second point. But throughout this gospel, it kept pointing forward to this hour. When his mother asked him to help the wedding guests, he told his mother, my hour had not yet come. And when his enemies tried to arrest him, it says they couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. But all of a sudden, when the Greeks start looking for him, When the world begins to seek him, he realizes the time has come for him to be crucified. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is saying that unless he dies, his life will not bear fruit fruit. And he wants to bear fruit for the sake of the world. Somehow, his death will bring a blessing to the world. And we'll see how in the second point. But before we get to that, Jesus gives us an application. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Jesus is saying, as he gives up his life to bear fruit, we are also called to forsake our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but this, sen- this sentence doesn't make sense. How can someone who loved their life lose it? Now, one way this might be true is the fact that we're all going to die eventually someday. So to treasure our life is to invest in something that we'll inevitably lose. But if that's the case, how can hating our life help us keep it for eternal life? Are we just called to suffer and be miserable in this life because following Jesus is just about suffering? Are we all supposed to be missionaries and go die in the jungle somewhere proclaiming the gospel? Is discipleship just about suffering, living miserably, and being a martyr? And didn't Jesus just say about two chapters ago, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly? Is there a contradiction here? Which one is it, Jesus? Is it the abundant life or is it the dying life? How do we reconcile these things? What if somehow the abundant life is the life that, like the grain of wheat, falls into the earth and dies? Now let's clear up this whole hating this life phrase. Now hating this life here does not mean literally loathing and despising life. It's not about resenting our existence. The word hate here is paired with the word love earlier. And back in those days, it's kind of like a Jewish way of showing an absolute contrast between two choices. Uh, We see this in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, uh, his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying to despise, to loathe your parents, your siblings, spouse, and children. He is saying that your love for Jesus must be so absolutely superior that it looks like you hate everything else. And we actually know what this looks like in our lives. We have many examples of this. Uh, I had a friend back when I was in uni. Uh, Whenever he got together with his girlfriend, he disappeared from the face of the earth. I was never sure whether he was still alive. Do you guys have a friend like this? Whenever they get together with someone, or maybe you're that friend, I don't see him in classes anymore. He doesn't hang out with us anymore. He doesn't reply to WhatsApp messages. Every day, all he does is hang out with his girlfriend. Now to the world, his love for his girlfriend looked like hatred to everything else, right? It looks like he hates uni because he doesn't go to classes. It looks like he hates his friends because he's never hanging out with them. It looks like he hates his phone because he's never on it. 
except to message her probably. But in reality, it looks like he hates those things because it is eclipsed by, I wouldn't call it love, but his infatuation with his girlfriend. And for those of us who have babies, it's true of having a baby, right? When we have a baby, it looks like we hate everything that normal people love. When we have a baby, it looks like we hate sleep because we wake up two to three hours every night. For some of us, it looks like we hate our careers because when we have a baby, we take a break, a four, six, 12-month break from work, sometimes forever. And it looks like we hate money because we spend it everywhere, baby bunting, childcare, schooling. We're going to hate money for the next 18 years. Now, what Jesus is pointing out here is by hating our life, that, that whole phrase, hating our life, is the reality of what love inevitably does. Love shifts our priorities drastically. It makes us look like we hate the things that we used to love. And if you love Jesus, it'll start looking like you hate other things. Mainly, of course, sin. You used to love the bottle, but you hate it now. Maybe you used to love porn, but you hate it now. You used to love lying, cheating, and stealing, but you hate it now that you're a Christian. Does it look like that, Christian, your life? I hope it does. Now, what does hating our life in this world particularly look like then? Jesus actually spells it out in verse 26. It's actually not about being a martyr. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, be, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you want to know what the practical meaning of hating your life is, to hate your life is to serve Jesus. To serve him is to follow him. Now look at the two promises that Jesus gives to those who follow him. Where I am, there will my servant be also. First, he promises you his presence. In this life, no matter your struggle or difficulty, he promises you his presence. And second, he promises you honor. The Father will honor you for serving Jesus. So that's our first point. Now, there are three things that people normally seek when they want to have a meaningful life. They want to have a life that makes an impact, that's full of love, and that's admirable and respected. Jesus offers us these three things by calling us to die and give up our life for him. This kind of life bears fruit, enjoys the love of Jesus, and is honored by the Father. But how will this life help us get through trials and difficulties that we'll inevitably face? Well, that's the next point. Here, Jesus now continues, and he faces the reality of what his life will lead him to. His soul is troubled. Look at verse 27. 
Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. See, Jesus knows what it's like to feel troubled in life because he's been troubled about his own. Uh, This is similar to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays to his father to take this cup away from him. Now, what troubles Jesus is actually not his death. What troubles Jesus is greater than his death. What troubles Jesus is facing the wrath of God, the judgment of God that is going to be poured out on sin at the cross. Now, in the face of this, what does Jesus do to steal himself? He remembers his goal. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His purpose in life is to glorify God. Now, as humans, I think we all want to glorify something. Typically, we want to glorify ourselves. And that's why we want to become successful, right? That's why we want to become great. We want to be glorious in ourselves. But Jesus here calls us to glorify God rather than ourselves. Now, here's why glorifying God is the better choice. It's because we're not that great. We're not that glorious. We're we're beautiful creatures made in God's image, but we are not worth worshiping. So if you devote your life to, to glorifying yourself, you'll find yourself quite disappointed. Uh, there's this famous philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. He experiences himself. He says, I have just now come from a party where I was its life and soul. Witticism streamed from my lips. Everyone laughed and admired me. But I went away and wanted to shoot myself. It is not worth giving our lives to glorifying ourselves, Christian. Instead, it's more satisfying glorifying someone who is worth the glory, which is God. Now, for Jesus, he knew that glorifying God meant dying on the cross, and that troubled him. So what happens when our soul is troubled? Look at verse 28. A voice from God assures us. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. A voice from God assures us that he has glorified his name and he will glorify it again. And remember what Jesus says in verse 30. That voice came for your sake, not mine. See, Jesus didn't need the assurance that God would glorify his name through his death. He knew that. That's how he could encourage himself when his soul was troubled. But this voice is the voice that we need to hear in our lives, perhaps now. Maybe you're trying to glorify God in your life, but you're just not sure it's working. 
the love you've shown to your neighbor, the sacrifices you've made, the ministry that you do, it doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit. People don't seem to be changed, or people don't even seem to, to come. It doesn't seem to be changing anything. However, the seemingly little ways in which we have lived for the glory of God, in which there seems to be silence, let us hear this voice today. He has glorified it, and he will glorify it again through us. Having said all that, the chief way in which God glorifies his name is through Jesus' death, which he's anticipating here. And it's important for us to think of the ways in which Jesus' death glorifies God. So let's consider them. First, look at verse 31. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God judges the world and casts its ruler out. This means that the cross is God's judgment on the world. Our sins, our deeds are so evil that it demands a penalty as great as the cross. Second, it is through this cross that Jesus defeats Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan's chief weapons against God and humanity is sin and death. But with the cross, there is access to forgiveness of sin and eternal life through his resurrection. So because of this, Satan's weapons are disarmed and no longer rules over the world. Third, look at verse 32. Through Jesus' death on the cross, the world can now seek him and have him. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, this is why at the beginning of the passage, the Greek seeking Jesus triggered him to know that his time to die was imminent. Jesus came so the whole world can be reconciled to God. Not just the Jews, not just God's people, everyone can come to him through the cross. So that's how Jesus' death glorifies God. It glorifies him by judging sin and evil through its penalty. It glorifies him by defeating Satan, sin, and death through its victory. And it glorifies him by drawing all people through its beauty. If a death as gruesome as the cross can glorify God, then God can take whatever life we have to glorify himself. Of course, the natural thing about glory is that it shines, and that's the third thing this life does shines. Now, the crowd was obviously uneasy with everything Jesus was saying. They heard about the Jesus that turns water into wine, that feeds the 5,000, that resurrects the dead, and they welcomed him as king just a few verses ago. How can this Jesus, the one whom they are eager to trust and follow, talk about dying? Isn't a king supposed to go upwards? Aren't they ever increasing, ever improving, ever getting higher and higher? That's the guy we want to follow, the person whose life we want to have. How then can he talk about dying? Look at verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted The Messiah is supposed to give us an eternal hope. How can he die? And my friends, this crowd's plea is our plea too. There are a lot of things we don't understand about suffering and death, even as Christians. 
We lose our job, we lose a loved one, or we're betrayed, and we're confused. The reality is, we need light. We don't understand how all of this can coexist. Bearing fruit through dying, glorifying God through forsaking our lives, it doesn't make sense. Now, there'll be questions about our lives that we'll never have answers to. But Jesus calls us to trust him despite all this. Trust, not in finding the answers that explains everything, but to trust in him, the light who will tread a path through the darkness. Look at verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Now Jesus doesn't really answer um, their question here when they ask who the Son of Man is. He doesn't go to a theological explanation um, or, or anything like that. He just calls them to walk with him. Now there may be some of you here who don't really want to trust or commit to Jesus until all your questions are answered. We're glad you're here and we love your curiosity. But here's one thing that I've realized. Christianity isn't primarily an intellectual exercise. It's not primarily a philosophy or worldview. Christianity is a relationship with a person. And you can study a person from a book, like a biography or a textbook, but it's different to knowing a person intimately, through conversation and by sharing your life with them. This is what Jesus invites us to. He's inviting us to a life with him. In this, we may not have all our questions answered, but we know a God who walks with us through it all. How then can we walk with this life? Light. Look at verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. We respond by believing in the light, which means believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus. And by believing in Jesus, we become sons of light. It transforms us to become like the light, like Jesus Christ. Uh, now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there are probably two ways in which you can respond to today's message. The Christian life has been laid out to you today. It's a life that dies so that others may live. It's a life that denies our own glory to seek the glory of God. And it's a life that walks in the light in the midst of darkness. Now you can respond by saying, I don't want this life. I want to love my life more than anything. I want to enjoy my own fruit. I want to seek my own glory. I want to live without God. You're welcome to do that. But remember what Dr. Sarah said. There doesn't seem, seem to be anything in this life worth the hype. Well, think about what um, actor Jim Carrey um, says, who has actually achieved probably most of the things that he wanted in life. Jim Carrey says this, 
I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of just so they can see that it's not the answer. Friends, no matter how many highs you chase and successes you achieve in this life, you will find that nothing is actually worth its hype. And if you will not give your life to Jesus, you will likely find at the end of your life, you have given your life to nothing worthy of it. And that's a sad ending indeed. Because in so doing, you might have forfeited eternal life as well. Now, the second way you can respond to this message is by accepting it. Now, I want to be clear. Accepting this life isn't accepting a requirement to live a morally perfect life in order to obtain um, heaven. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is this. It's not that you have to live this and that way to sacrifice your life and then you'll be accepted by God. That is not the gospel. Rather, by repenting from your sins and believing in Jesus, you have actually accepted a trade, his life for yours. See, the great message of this passage is not about how we are to live. That's an application of this passage, but that is not the message. The message of this passage is not about how we live. It's actually about how Jesus lived. See, Jesus does not call us to live in a way that he himself hasn't. You see, although Jesus calls us to love him so much that you hate your own life, the reality is Jesus himself has shown that he loves you so much that it looks like he hated his own life. The Son of God had eternal life in heaven, free from suffering, death, and pain. Yet what did he do? As if hating his own life, he stepped down from heaven so that you can be brought home. As if hating his own life, instead of being born in a palace as a prince, he decided to be born in a manger as a carpenter's son. Why? So that he could elevate your status, no matter how lowly you are, from sinner to children of God. As if hating his own life, instead of dying in peace at a ripe old age, he chose to die violently on a cross under God's wrath so that you can live forever under God's peace. He hated his life in this world so that you can have eternal life with him. So if you're not a Christian today, and this is who you want to follow and worship, this is the life you want. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, well, the call for you is to become sons of light. See, here's the promise of the Christian life. 
it's not only the grace of bearing fruit, it's not only the grace of eternal life and of glorifying God. The reward of the Christian life is the people that we end up becoming and transforming into by following Jesus. We become sons of light, those who are like the Christ that we worship. People who die to themselves so that others can be blessed, loved, and know the grace of God. People who are comforted that God will glorify himself through our feeble efforts and works. People who walk in the presence of Jesus, comforted by the Savior, that although they do not understand the meaning and purpose behind their sufferings, they have a God who can redeem even the darkest event, like a crucifixion, so they can have assurance that God can and will redeem their own suffering as well. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the life that you've given us. You've created us, you have determined